0: Radical Radio Collective. 4 Good afternoon, listeners. You're tuned into 4ZZZ, 102.1 FM, and this is Eco Radio taking over your midday airwaves. I'm Dave. I'm here with Monique. Hello. And I want to start off by acknowledging and paying my respects to the custodians on the country in which we broadcast. We are located in the city of Mianjin on Turrubull, Yugga and Yugabul land. I also want to acknowledge and pay my respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening in today. Our radio waves reach Cubby Cubby and Jinnabara country in the north, uh, Waka Waka country in the west. In the east we pay our respects to the Kwanamook people. And down south we reach the Kommering, Nagaragual, Manjali, Wanjarabarra and Yugambeh countries. Thank you, No Idea, for all the fantastic ideas. And um, playing that uh, black hole sound, that was fantastic. Wasn't that cool? Yeah, it was super cool. Uh, So today on Eco Radio, we're going to be talking about native grains. Uh, Jeff has brought us an interview about milling grain by stone. And I'm joined uh, by our very special guest, Gamil Ray Mann, and uh, native grain researcher, Jacob
1: Birch. Jacob, how are you? Yeah, I'm going to... Just, uh, how you going, everyone? And, uh, yama, maliago. Hello, my friends out there. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty good. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, we're, uh, really excited to have you in today, uh, because, uh, you're doing a lot of work with Black Duck Foods, uh, learning and, uh, researching, making the practical steps for native grain.
1: Yeah, uh I was doing some collaborative stuff with Black Duck. I'm not with them anymore. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, pretty much a sole trader out there. Um, yeah, doing some sort of academic work with some universities and um, uh, picking up bits and pieces wherever I can with this stuff. I was really, like, focused on, on s- sort of driving the native grain industry and... Um, with a focus back on Gamilaroi country, mm-hmm. so like northwest New South Wales, southwest Queensland, that's back on grain country. Like you know, um, those explorers Sturt and Mitchell talked about those heap piled heaps of mi- m- native millet, and mm-hmm. they commented on all the the vast plains of cut grass and all that kind of thing. That was back on like our country and our neighbours' country, like you know, from Barkindji all the way up to like. Gamilaroi and across Takuma and all that and Ualarai, Waowin, Ngemba.
0: Yeah, because there, uh, well, we'll get into this more, but there was a, a grain belt uh, by uh, countries uh, throughout the continent, right? Uh, talking about Tyndale's... Grain well, the belt. Tyndale
1: map, yeah. Tyndale Ark. Yeah, yeah, that was um... Yeah, he, he spent like a couple of decades out in the field with like knowledge holders and um... From that knowledge, I hypothesised this arc where, he, where like grains were a really important part of the traditional diet. Um, yeah, so it's this big arc, like from northwest Victoria all the way up through like New South Queensland, across t- uh, Northern Territory into WA. Yeah, it's a huge area. Yeah, all that rangeland country. Mm. Yep. And we don't see
0: uh, grasslands as being, uh, like, this important environmental uh, system. We, uh, well, I, uh, uh, initially, I guess I saw it as being, uh, like, an uh, empty space, but
1: it's not. No, we, we've massively undervalued our native grasslands, like, everybody has um like farmers will go in and put in non native things like so we have say our gunner lay for example, which is Mitchell grass, they've like, the cattle and um sheep and all that have and rabbits probably too and all your other invasive non native species destroying like our native grasses and then um, you know, overgrazing, overstocking and then chucking in things like buffalo grass mm-hmm. and things like buffalo grass are really invasive they change the ecosystem they change the fire regimes um, so like fires become more intense more frequent and same up north like in savannah country things like gamba grass are complete ecosystem engineers they're changing the whole ecosystem and like even some state governments are still promoting like gamba grass and these things are like, um massively changing the ecosystem but they're also causing massive wildfires too like the intensity of these bushfires is is killing everything and um yeah so we've undervalued our grasslands and and like Australia's a grassland continent really like traditionally it would have been kept really open and and all the species that survive and rely on grasslands like grassland habitats like Right down from like your your microorganisms in the in the soil yeah. to your invertebrates to your birds and small reptiles, right up to those big iconic species like kangaroo and emu, plains turkey, all that kind of thing, so all relying on grasslands. Yeah, so yeah, I, ho- I heard that um the the native uh, grasses also help to get the moisture back into the soil after fire. Mm, yeah, probably they because they um, they don't burn as hot either. So they keep the and I guess it also depends on when you burn too. And a cultural fire practitioner be able to talk to this a bit more because I'm, that's I'm, that's not my area of expertise. Mm. But I don't want to make out like I know that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I- if you burn at the right time, you keep that moisture in the ground. Like, it, the, the soil is still cold to touch and you can still, like, feel all the moisture in the ground. Mm. Um, but, yeah, because they're long-lived perennial grasses too, like, you you look at non-native stuff that they sort of encourage people to put in the ground, a lot of it's annual. So you, yeah. you go for a drive out here and in winter, it's all dead. All the grasses are dead because they're not native. Um, <coughs> whereas, like, our native perennials... They're holding that soil together but they got these really big root systems really deep root systems so when you do get rain it's it helps that water infiltrate into the soil mm-hmm. um and with your native grasslands too because they do support all that biodiversity um like people undervalue also this small mammal species and marsupial mm-hmm. species that and the role they play in so things like bandicoots and um, your native like rats and mices that um they turn and over the soil all the time and that also helps the water infiltrate and get into the soil and held in the soil and then rather than when you get a rain event now it just hits this hard barren soil and runs straight into the rivers and you get all this yep. flooding and i'm not saying that's the only reason you get flooding but like it's part of this like more holistic thing where there's a lot of factors that um influence things and uh yeah yeah it's such a uh, such an interesting thing cuz
0: the uh uh wheat the conventional wheat mm. uh is an annual so they are constantly replacing these uh, uh species these uh uh fields whereas uh there was a kangaroo grass tussock that was estimated to be 50 years old mm. which is amazing
1: for, for grass
0: really?
1: yeah oh. yeah that that's the same with the mitchell grasses like we don't know how long they live for because we haven't studied them enough but like i know some people who have been researching them in their early career and they've been like visiting the same tussocks for 40 years the same grasses so it's like an old growth forest. These mm.
0: grasslands—that's oh, amazing.
1: And we just we wow. just don't like nobody really. People are starting to wake up to it. Um, and you imagine like the amount of like climate change is such such a big issue. Like imagine all the carbon that's putting back into the soil. Yeah, as is that like these ancient like that that is that is such an
0: important point. Uh, we we often talk about old growth forests here, um, mm. but we're not talking about old growth. Grasslands. Yeah. No. Uh, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, fascinating. Um, we're talking today with Jacob Birch, uh, native grain researcher and Gamilroy man. Um, and we were just talking about uh, the uh, native grains in general. Uh, can we talk about the uh, history of uh, grain production's in uh, country? Uh, because uh, grinding stones, bread making has been found to be going on for sixty five
1: thousand years here. Mm, yeah, with and who knows actually how long? Yeah, that's long.
0: just what but, what's been found. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, um, yeah. That the most sort of commonly accepted timeline is sixty thousand, and that comes from like Northern Territory where they've found like. Grindstone fragments, and on those grindstones, they found they were grinding seeds. Um, and that same site, they've actually found not 60,000 stratum, but you know, you go through the geological timeline as you dig deeper and deeper. And at that 28,000-year stratum, um, they found like fully intact native rice. So a lot of people probably don't know, but like all your conventional rice is the rice you buy in the shop, or rice that's grown all the all over the um, asia and that asian minor kind of it's it's probably originated from australia yeah right yeah yeah so we we have like at least three native rice species in that same genus as rice so you arises at sativa you buy it at the shop and we got all our other rices. so most likely it came from here whether it was traded or whether it sort of just jumped across that land bridge yeah yeah you know, like, that's... For the rest of the country in that grain arc, it's, you know, pretty um, pretty solid evidence of, like, at least 40,000 years of, like, consistent usage. Um, yeah, and, and, and like, your, your earthen ovens that you would use to, like, um, cook up all your foods and that, like, 40,000-year-old earthen ovens as well. So, yeah, it's pretty there's a lot of like geological evidence and more and more coming out as well so like you look at some of that research emerging out of um, uh, Mythica country uh, they've found there like uh, the largest grindstone quarry in the southern hemisphere so there would have been they weren't just grinding like ha- quarrying grindstones for their own personal use this would have been the centre of trade <coughs> That would they would have been supplying grindstones for all sorts of communities from all around like they've found like all sorts of really interesting things out there like evidence of like water management and um sedentary living like they they haven't fully proven this stuff they're still testing this these um but yeah this massive grindstone would have been because you can't just use stone from anywhere you you need that right kind of stone so they would have been supplying all those ad- adjacent communities with that grindstone a big trade around it so it would have been like an economic activity
0: yeah yeah because the, the trade uh, has gone on like throughout the whole country uh, mm. east to west north to south over these trade lines mm. um so uh i guess uh what where. Uh, as, you know, settler colonials are uh, dealing with now is why have we uh, been ignorant to this?
1: Um, to why haven't t-
0: we utilised native grains in Australia?
1: Um, I've been, like, reflecting on this a little bit and just looking at how agriculture is used in Australia and and you sort of hear, like, um, people say, like, oh european agricultural practices um ruined out like they weren't suited to australia but if you look at agriculture in europe in the 1700s and early 1800s it was it was sustainable and it was small scale each family had their own farm and it was really diversified too and it coexisted with nature Mm. so only recently that um especially since that green revolution in the 50s or 60s like after the world war ii like that's when it's really become industrialized so we didn't even get the opportunity to adopt european practices in australia we adopted this completely different thing where like agriculture was used pretty much to um rapidly colonize the continent in a way or and rapidly grow the economy mm. so you look even by the 18 oh, 1830s, like there's about 15 million sheep across the continent That's only what a generation of being here, and 15 million sheep eating out all those native grasslands. So, no wonder they didn't see any of it because the sheep, a lot of the time, the sheep and the cattle preceded people. Mm -hmm. So, we're just going through and just eating it out. Mm. Um, But, yeah, we've used agriculture really differently in Australia, and it's just all about like economic and it's like this mentality get big or get out um Mm. just grow the economy um and native grains just aren't economically viable enough like we've reached out to people like yeah yeah it's just all about like yield and um but i think as as like like fertilizer and fuel costs go up so to to put a a crop of weed in, like, it costs you fuel, it costs you fertiliser, irrigation, all that kind of thing. And that's becoming less and less viable. Like, I don't know, how much of our nitrogen urea fertiliser comes from, like, Russia and Mm. China or that kind of thing? Like, all this, like, geopolitics and all that at play as well, like, is also going to impact the viability of long term viability Um, but you know phosphorus is a limited resource and we're going to run out of that um, probably within my lifetime or my kids lifetime and um, yeah a lot of farmers are saying like because of the rising costs they're not going to be able to plant the same amount of crops they did last year so Mm -hmm. whereas native grains you put them in the ground once and they're in there for 50 years at least, we Isn't don't that know. Incredible? Yeah. Um, so,
0: yeah, that's a really good point. There's a, there's a huge <laughs> carbon footprint that comes with industrial farming.
2: Mm. Um,
0: whereas you're saying with uh, native grains, because they're uh, suited to the environment here, uh, they don't come with fertilizing, they don't come with irrigating. Mm. Um,
1: Pesticide. Pesticides, pesticides, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's another big sort of thing. I always, I like, talk about like um, you know, in, in Australia the amount of pesticides we use is ridiculous, and there's pesticides we use in Australia that even America's outlawed. Like, you yeah, know, right? You know, no, we're so. Oh. You know, if you look at America, you can go and buy an automatic weapon, but there's pesticides that are so dangerous <laughs> that they've outlawed them in America, but we still use them. We put them on our wheat, and then we eat our wheat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, but um, like, what's that doing for biodiversity too? Right?
0: Insects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, bees. That's the, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's what I say, like, when was the last time you you saw Christmas beetles at Christmas?
0: Yeah.
1: And remember, I don't know, like, as a kid, I remember, like, the smell and the, just the masses of Christmas beetles. Mm. It was such an iconic thing, but now you don't get it anymore. I mm. can't remember the last time I... Even saw a Christmas beetle, and you know what they eat is they live in the roots of the of native grasses when they when they pupa. Oh, right. So those curl grubs you dig out of your garden, they're the they're the pupa of the lava of um Christmas beetles oh. of all your big beetles, rhinoceros right, yeah. beetles, Christmas beetles. That's a good point. I haven't seen
0: rhinoceros beetles for a while. Oh. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, now the uh, milling of uh, native
1: grains is a difficult uh, thing to do, right? Milling isn't a drama; it's the threshing. The threshing. Yeah. So you you harvest it, um, and then you got to thresh it and winnow it, and then you can mill it. So. Okay. So what's what's threshing? That's where you remove the edible grain from the husk, from the, from like that. Out a fibrous material that holds the grain in the seed he- in the florid of the grass so um like things like your, your wheat and barley and all that um they've been bred for like ten thousand years so um they've been bred to release the grain from the husk really easily and and we've got the combine headers now and that that harvest and thresh and separate the grain from the trash in one sort of process Um, but our native grains they hold the they hold it in there and native grasses hold their grain in there a lot more tightly so we gotta that's the really tricky part is removing the grain from that the the outer husk
0: on a commercial scale yeah Mm. is it easy to do it by hand like if i if i wanted to Go uh, make a kangaroo grass uh, bread. Mm. Could I go find my kangaroo grass, uh, pick the seeds, uh, thrush the seeds, uh, thrush the seeds, sorry, and uh, uh, grind them into into a bread? No, nah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Kangaroo grass is like, the hardest. No, no. Nah. Um, and even like things like uh, your mitchell grass is super difficult as well. You things like maybe your millet are easy, but yeah, it's you got to find the grasses too. Like mm. you drive eight hours in any direction and not find a decent native grassland. Mm. Um, so it's actually getting getting the product and then processing it. And so the processing will take some time because the technology
0: is not there yet for the native grasses
1: to do it commercially on scale. But um, even we could. If we could get access to the grasses and, and like start revitalising culture around it, then we can use cultural practices, mm-hmm. and at least then we're b- keeping that alive. But if we want to sort of get economic development, because that's like that's for me, I think that's important is the economic development as well, alongside like equally weighted with the cultural or e- cultural overarching. But you want to. You want people to have meaningful economic futures, um, and I see this as part of um, being able to uh, get jobs for people mm-hmm. on country that are culturally aligned. Um, yeah, so we would would want to figure out how to do it commercially at scale. Mm. Um, yeah, but that's not a super. That's just like a a little roadblock and i was saying to you earlier about like we only can do wheat now commercially viably because we have the combine header if we didn't have a combine header and we were using technology that existed before that growing wheat would not be viable the time and labor required to separate the wheat from the husk and thresh like we know it it wouldn't be viable and an australian was the one who invented that combine header so there's no reason an australian can't invent the next one to deal with native grains yeah.
2: absolutely yeah. um
1: so jeff ebbs our uh um,
0: our wonderful uh co-host here he's brought us an interview with rob peaking uh from food connect and uh, rob's got a uh, milling stone a big granite milling stone uh, there um, so he's going to tell us all about the, uh, milling process. You're listening to four triple Z. This is, uh, Rob Peking with, uh, Jeff Ebbs talking about the milling process.
3: Okay. Rob peaking from the food connect foundation. Welcome to eco radio. Uh,
2: thanks Jeff. Uh, Really, really uh, looking forward to the conversation mate. Cheers. Um, now, I understand you are milling flour at the Food Connect shed. Do you want to just tell me what's happening there? Yeah, we are. We've, um, we we uh, commissioned uh, an Australian made mill using Australian granite um, a year or so ago uh, by two young farmers down in um, Ballingen in uh, not Ballingen, in Berrigan in uh, Southern New South Wales uh, um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, there was a couple of requirements. We didn't want any timber around. A lot of these things that they import from Austria and America have got timber all over. them. being in a humid climate, um, we wanted to have no timber because that just absorbed moisture. And then the second thing we had uh, as a requirement was the millstone had to have the ability to be able to um, grind native grain. So Ian and Hamish um, set about their work and uh, that was delivered last year and um it's been and we've been experimenting and working with all sorts of people on all sorts of grains ever since like no one knows what fresh flour is in brisbane let's let's get a mill let's um you know of a commercial quality where people can really get to you know see the different flowers that can be made from local grains so are uh, there the industrial like, so, um, no, there's no industrial mills. There's like huge, you know, uh, huge mills. Um, there's one over at Rock Lee, but it got flooded uh, in the in the floods that just happened recently. Um, it's owned by Maori, which is owned by a, a global milling corporation. But everything is done in house. There's no, they don't, you don't know where the flour goes from that mill. So no one has any ability to be able to say, oh, I want to get you know freshly milled flour from you know whatever it is, whether it's up on the um, up on the Darling Downs, or around the Sunshine Coast region, or down around Kyogre region. So uh, yeah, you've, you've mentioned local
3: grains a few times. Your, uh, pr- uh, pr- the project or the uh, uh, intention of Food Connect is to localise the food supply. What are the characteristics of local grains, especially native grains, that were important in terms of, you know, setting up a mill and selling flour made from local grains?
2: Yeah. yeah I suppose there's three probably important pieces to the puzzle um those native grains whether it be um, mitchell grass or dancing grass or kangaroo grass or or whatever it is are really important to uh the um the regeneration of the Australian landscapes uh they're um they're they're native to the Australian landscape um and they're critical in terms of sequestering carbon and restoring our restoring the function in 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 the australian soils the second thing is it's really important that we acknowledge indigenous people as the first you know millers bakers um flower uh or, or, or harvesters of grain um from eons ago and that's really critical i think from our, from food connect perspective we've got a, an indigenous person who's the chair of our board and this is this this is an indigenous partnership um with um, some of the mobs from out out west uh, further out west um, it's, it's really important that we acknowledge uh and remunerate um the indigenous people in this process so uh so that's that's really important for us as a society um and uh important for us for, for, and important for us from from so many angles whether it be an economic angle or just uh enabling access or our access into their wisdom and knowledge and then the third really important part is that the, the grains are uh, highly nutritious like they're you know 20 30 percent protein in some cases they're uh, extraordinarily flavorsome and nutritious and the taste profile or a flavor profile that's really quite something special and um, um you know we've got uh working with um black duck foods uh and the narrow research institute we've got some um bakers who are really experimenting with using these in crackers because the protein gives that real crack and that crispness to the bread um so uh, you know, it's another exciting evolution, I suppose, of Australia. And I don't mean to be, you know, I don't mean to be flippant about this, but we haven't got a, Australia hasn't got a food culture. You know, it's, it's we've, we've borrowed this, this sort of European food culture and brought it over here. Um, so incorporating these flavours and, um, and nutritional profiles into our, what we eat is bringing, is evolving the food culture that, that we need to acknowledge more. As, a, as an important part of our cuisine.
3: Mm. And so what sort of challenges have you hit along the way? <laughs> um, many and varied.
2: Um, yeah. in, these... in 60 seconds or less. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, the hardest part has been aspirating the grain out of the floret for us to put it through the mill. Um, but thankfully, Black Duck Foods, they've come across a machine that can do that. Um, and so it's uh it's been probably six months of experimenting and we think we're out of that now we're into the space where we can really start to um you know you know in small commercial quantities start to do these flowers so that's separating
3: the grain from the chaff and bran or whatever yeah from
2: the flower yeah from the the little seed capsule tin yeah yeah mm. the, the husk I suppose you could call it another way um and obviously there's a, there's a lot of work to be done yet on empowering and giving um the various indigenous mobs agency over them being the, you know harvesting this grain bringing it into us having some sort of stake in in um or actually working with them to get mills out on out out on country so they can have that value adding out in the regions um and then we help them uh with the distribution side of things and the marketing and that side of things so it's a it's a really exciting collaborative project that's still sort of unfolding as we as we speak um but uh you know we've got um uh what's the word uh, you know the relationship is um is building all the time as we learn and, and muck around with this stuff
3: excellent so if people listening to eco radio at the moment would like to buy or taste some of these grains what's the best way for them to get hold of them
2: a um, uh, Food Connect, uh, we're, well at the moment we're just doing your traditional wheats. We're going to experiment with some locally grown rice um, and turn that into flour um, next weekend. Um, so just subscribe to the Food Connect Sheds um, newsletter and keep updated that way.
3: Excellent. So Food Connect is just the two English words put together without any punctuation, spaces or funny business.com.au. Uh, yep. yep. That's it. That's the one. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for your time today, Rob. No worries at all. Cheers, Jeff.